Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Brand Called You. So listen, you know, I believe the word renaissance man is used far too often. It's overused. Every time somebody introduces me to a renaissance man, it's just a big nothing burger. But today is an exception because I have a real renaissance man as a guest, Ori Soltis. Let me tell you about Ori. He teaches at Georgetown University across a range of disciplines from art history to philosophy to political history to theology. Not only that, he used to run a National Jewish Museum in Washington where he curated over 75 exhibitions. He's the author of over 300 articles, exhibition catalogs, essays, and books, including the one I wanna talk about today, which is called Growing Up Jewish in India, Synagogues, Customs and Communities from B'nai Israel, to the art of Siona Benjamin. So our Ori, welcome, welcome. It's great welcome, to have you. Welcome to me. <laughs> Glad to be with you, Lisa. So Ori, one of the reasons I was so interested, aside from my own personal fascination in, the, in this topic, is the brand called you is started by an entrepreneur and a best-selling author named Ashutosh Garg, who lives in India. This show is produced and edited in India. And there's a lot of people watching right now in India who I think would be fascinated by this subject. Um, you know, what occurs to me as I read it that not only do non-Jews in India not know about the Jewish community, but actually most of the Jews that I know in New York are also really unfamiliar with this fascinating I guess, uh, a group of Jews. And, and and that's why I really, I know that you wrote this book um, primarily to, to discuss um, this wonderful <laughs> artist, but I want to give some context, historical context first. So yeah. I guess my, my first question is, um, Indian Jews, really? <laughs> when, you know, I, I know there's a lot of um, confusion as to when and how Jews arrived yeah. in India, but and and you've tried to articulate it very well in in both you know your 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 chapters and and others by guest artists, but maybe you can help articulate how how big the community is and and when they arrived and so forth. Sure. So let me answer that question in in three ways. One, uh, there would be a kind of natural disposition for India to host a community of Jews because India itself is so incredibly diverse from its geography and its topography to its own diverse religious traditions, even within what we outsiders mistakenly refer to as Hinduism, we're really talking about a series of different subset understandings of, of what that means. You know, whether Krishna or Vishnu or Shiva or Brahma is the primary focus of your sense of the Godhead. So India is, is vast and it's diverse. So to bring in another group, is not a big surprise. And that group has its own vast and diverse history, although it's a spread out history. And in fact, that group, when it comes to India, doesn't come to India as a group. First of all, there were until the 70s, three primary groups of Jews in India. So the Beni Israel is one, and they're mainly in and around the area of Mumbai. But you also have the uh, Cochini Jews in and around the area of Cochin. And you also have the Baghdadi Jews. And in the 70s and the 90s, there were two groups, one from the south, one from the north, that discovered or rediscovered their Judaism. 
and they called themselves respectively the Bene Menashe and the Bene Ephraim. So that gives you five distinct groups. And even within, let's say, the Bene Israel, there is a group that is darker skinned. There's a group that's lighter skinned. And there was a period of time in which they didn't intermarry. As to, now the third answer to your question, so the second part is the Indian Jews are a diverse group in and of themselves, even though grand total at the peak, there were probably 30, 40,000, 50 max, and probably not that many. The peak being what year? Uh, Probably just before India was established around the same time that the state of Israel was established so that a lot of Indian Jews ended up migrating to Israel. And by the way, that is no contra- there's no contradiction for their identity as Indians and as Israelis. It's like, India is my motherland, Israel is my fatherland. You have two parents, you feel an equal affinity for both. Indian Jews feel that way about India and Israel, whether they're living in, in India or in Israel. As to when they arrived, well, that is a story of stories within stories. The Baghdadi Jews, so-called, presumably came from the Middle East, from the area in and around Baghdad, but perhaps elsewhere as well. And that was relatively late, let's say, in the 17th, 18th centuries. Were, were, they, were they following the, that silk route by any chance? Maybe, or? by any chance, exactly. Possibly. The Cochini Jews have a series of accounts of where and when they exactly came from. And the Bene Israel, which is the largest of the communities, so I, I chose their name to put in the title for two reasons. They're the largest of the, of the Jewish communities, but also I like the, uh, the phonic connection between Bene Israel and Siona Benjamin, who happens to be a Bene Israel Jew, by the way. But there are half a dozen different origin stories for the Bene Israel. So depending upon when or which or what you want to believe and embrace and accept, they could have arrived as early as the time of King Solomon, among his traders, because he is said to have had particularly the tribe of Zebulun, among the 12 Israelite tribes, was known as traders. Or they came around the time of the Babylonian destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile. That would make it the sixth century. Or they came around the time of the destruction of the second temple. Or they came around the time of Jesus. And by the way, early Christianity was convinced that among Jesus' disciples, St. Thomas, went all the way to India to preach. In fact, there are some Christians who believe that Jesus, during the 20 years we don't know where he was, went all the way as far as India to try and preach. And so there are some who associate the arrival of Jews to India around that time. The point is, you can keep going on with this. Um, And what is further interesting is that when to outsiders, and by that I mean essentially the Europeans, the Bene Israel kind of appear for the first time recognized as Jews, it's because there are English missionaries going to there. And one of them who opens up a school, translates the Bible into the local language from Hebrew so that the Bene Israel who have no knowledge of Hebrew can read it. He claims, well, two things. One, that they were reminded of their Jewish roots in 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 a kind of concrete way by a representative of the Cochini community who came, visited, stayed among them, taught taught them. Two, he said, all they remember is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They remember about keeping the Sabbath. They remember a few customs, but not much else. But my efforts to, to convert them have failed miserably because their identity as Jews is so rock solid that they're not interested 
all the stuff that I've provided for them, they won't become Christians. So it's a really, really interesting story. And of course, I'm giving you the tip of several icebergs here. Uh, I, I need this to say, I invite anyone and everyone to buy the book and read it. And that will also lead you to other sources to read more. What, what would possibly make a culture that is so far removed from, you know, their, their origin um, be so, you know, uh, have such conviction about their ju ju Judaism. Whatever it was that they had, they had those convictions. You know, the, the most popular story about the Bene Israel is that there was a shipwreck and there were 12 survivors, six females, six males. And they were the basis for the Bene Israel community. And they're taken in and they interweave themselves with the Hindu and Muslim majorities. And they would get invited to all the festivals. And everyone had his, her, unique gastronomy. And so the Bene Israel at one point said, look, we should also come up with something unique in our gastronomy. So one of the most famous foodstuffs that you'll find at every celebration, at every wedding, at every anything within the Bene Israel world is called the Malida, M-A-L-I-D-A, the Malida platter, which is a mixture of rice and vegetables, and uh, not vegetables, excuse me, fruits, flowers, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's diverse because they said, look, what we contribute is that we still have within our community traders. They go everywhere. They bring back stuff from everywhere. So let's come up with a food platter that is diverse in the substances that get put into it yeah. so that we can participate. So it's like, I don't know, what is it that causes a group to maintain its identity? One of the things that when I was reading in your book, you described this Melita platter, I couldn't help but think about when I was a Jewish storyteller performing all over America. Yes. And I, I remember going down to Texas and I met this woman who said her grandfather used to make matzah by rolling out flour and water and then rolling his boot spurs on it for air holes, right? <laughs> and then they would eat guacamole with their Passover meal, you know, right. and, um, you know, I, I, there were so many stories like that. Um, the, uh, got it, it, in, um, in Indiana, what's that famous school, that uh, football team that is in Indiana that everybody, Notre, oh, Notre Dame. Dame, Notre, Notre Dame, Dame, yeah. And the rabbi would, would make his kiddish in a Notre Dame shot glass, you know, there's constant integrations, but, Absolutely. but, but the, but, and, and, you know, and your, your book was filled with them, such as wearing henna at a Jewish wedding or, um, Absolutely. Um, so many, you know, so many of the clothes and stuff. But but I had an, another question for you. Sure. Because Jews are brilliant at absorbing the cultures around them and still maintaining their Judaism. How did they integrate? And I'm assuming they must have and absorb some aspects of Hindu culture into their Judaism. Well, you know, you could look at the henna ceremony mm -hmm. as coming either from the Hindus or from the Muslims or from both. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, obviously some of the foodstuffs come from the Hindu world around them. Uh, and one of the things that the Bene Israel reputedly would do is when there would be meat that would be served in a kind of a milk-based sauce in the Hindu tradition, they would substitute for the milk-based sauce rice-based sauce or something that was non-milk because they were aware somehow of that aspect of Jewish kashrut that you don't mix milk and meat yeah. products. How they were remained aware of that, I'm not sure, but they were aware, or they re-became aware of it, maybe through the Cuccini, or who knows, even through that English missionary, so they would adapt. Yeah, 
But I was also thinking, aside from stuff, I wondered if you wrote about how there really is no tradition of violent religious violence um, among Jews That's there. Correct. Is that because they somehow internalized those wonderful stories of the Hindu gods? Um, is there anything in these beautiful Indian religious tales, these godly tales, mm -hmm. or the philosophy or approach to, to Hinduism that might have tempered um, what yeah. could have been more? Well, I would, I would put it this way. I would say it, it is by uh, no means absolutely correct to say that within the Hindu tradition, there is no violence. Uh, certainly the Bhagavad Gita, which is the central text of Krishnite or Krishnite Hinduism, has the god Krishna, in fact, encouraging Arjuna yes. not to stay out, of the, stay out of the battle, but to go into it, first of all, because as someone from that caste, the Kshatriya, the, the warrior caste, it's what he's supposed to do. And second of all, because under the circumstances he finds himself, He's got to go to war against it's his blind uncle, his cousins, its family members in order to restore the proper dharma, the proper order of things, which would make him and not his blind uncle, the king who had usurped it from him when he was still a kid. So war is certainly acceptable. But on the other hand, you don't typically find, for example, the sort of thing that abided or is that abode? I don't know. In Europe for 150 years, the religious wars between Protestants or Catholics, yeah. or the wars, the Crusades, between Christians and Muslims. You rarely find that kind of behavioral pattern that is precipitated by religious convictions because Krishna is my primary understanding of, or my sense of what the primary shaping of the Godhead takes. And yours is Vishnu. So for you, Krishna is just one of Vishnu's avatars. And for the guy next to me, it's really Brahman but we all acknowledge the legitimacy of all of our perspectives because we see all of them as kind of co-aspects of Brahma, of being, of God, so there's no reason to fight over it. Hinduism is mistakenly thought of by outsiders as being polytheistic. It's not. It's monotheistic, but it's got an infinite number of aspects or avatars or manifestations, and given that, there's much less likely to be war because of religious convictions than one finds in monotheistic traditions. I mean, would so this Judaism would have been affected by that. I was going to say, would this also explain why there's no, up until maybe later, no real tradition of anti-Semitism? Yeah, the only time there's really serious anti-Semitism, which is relatively brief, is in Goa. And that's when the Portuguese are in mm -hmm. charge as a colonial power, because they brought with them the whole idea of the Inquisition and the Judaizing heresy and the danger and the problem of Jews, da, 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 da. So that's really the only time. And I would not say that, you know, you, you'll never find any anti-Semitism among contemporary Indians because you will find some, whether it's cultural, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's spiritual, religious, it's just that it's, it, it hardly prevails the way we see it in almost everywhere else on the planet. Well, and in one of your great ironic stories, when the British came, I guess we're talking um, when they yes. colonized much later, um, I think you you referred to the fact that um, actually they they viewed Jews as white skins right. versus their, their dark skinned Indian non-Jews and actually were treated better as a result. Is that true? It, it's one of those little ironies. Back at home, the Jews were treated by the British as non-European, as non-whites. In India, because somehow, oh, well, they're kind of like us because they're Jews, Christians, Europeans, they get treated as whites 
And so you have a preponderance mm -hmm. of Jewish participation in the administrative system, whether it's, you know, whether it's governance, whether it's serving the military, all sorts of positions the Jews more easily attained because the Brits favored them there, whereas back in, in, in England, they would have been disfavored. I mean, and there's so many things that are going through my mind, but one of the most fascinating things, or I suppose incarnations of Judaism was um, this use of Elijah the prophet and the prayer that goes along with it. So for those people that don't know that are watching, I mean, Elijah is one of our prophets. And I think from what I've read, he's one of the first that was reincarnated that actually died yeah went to heaven as one of God's uh, messengers. Well, reincarnated might not be the way to put it, right? He's okay. represented in the Bible as going up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Okay. Much, much later on in the Jewish tradition, he comes to be thunk of as someone who's going to return before the Messiah comes. Okay. Therefore, his importance, for example, every Passover evening, you welcome Elijah because you're hoping that he's going to show up and with him the Messiah. Because while the Christian world is waiting for Jesus as the Messiah to return, the Jewish world traditionally is waiting for the Messiah to show up in the first place. And by the way, not sure who it will be. But right. I, I love your bringing Elijah up because that's another in particular for the Bene Israel, a very important, uh, he's such an important figure. And you have a, a location not far from Mumbai where people go for a, a, a ceremony where there is set on the stone to be this kind of uh, this track from the chariot itself as it was leaving. And now think about this. Yeah. Elijah presumably rose in that fiery chariot over somewhere in the Galilee in what is right. today Israel. But there's no contradiction that he did that. And at the same time, he was in India and rose from India to heaven. Why, Why is there no contradiction? The same, I, I guess it's just one of those aspects of, of you know, religious belief, there's no contradiction. Just yeah. as Indian Israel are equally my parents as an Indian Bene Israel or Cochini or Baghdadi or Bene Menashe or Bene uh, Ephraim Jew, I feel no contradiction between this kind of dual loyalty. I feel no contradiction between uh, uh, enjoying the idea of Elijah ascending to heaven in a fiery chariot from both of these two places. It's just one of them, there are things. I mean, it's, it's in a way analogous to the following two propositions. For Jews and Muslims in the Abrahamic world, God is an absolute singularity. For Christians, God is triune. How can God be three and one at the same time? That's what a Jew or Muslim would say. For a Christian, it's just part of the belief system. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, part of the same substance. Second example, what I've been talking about, Hinduism, single Godhead, how can Krishna coexist as one of the avatars of Vishnu and as the preeminent manifestation of Godhead? The answer is because that's how it is. And, and, and what I was fascinated by, and this is really specific to India, is this, uh, I believe it's Iliahu Hanavi prayer yes. that maybe you could explain that a little because I don't, I've never heard of that tradition in, in Brooklyn or New Jersey, right? Well, except, except on Passover and, 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 Passover? On, and the end of the Sabbath. Um, right, we sing, we okay. sing that song, right. but I think it's applied much in a much more varied way in India at different occasions and so oh, forth. Oh yes, it's 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 all all the time. It's kind of like the Melita platter all the time. You know, it probably the Melita originated at some specific ceremony, and then gradually it's just like all the time the henna ceremony. It probably started maybe just on a particular occasion all yeah. the time, and I think the Elio Hanavi prayer. It's the same thing. Yeah. All the time, any major event will involve, engage him because we want him there with us. 
I mean, my, my girlfriend has such a big family that she has to rent out the social hall in Albany for Pesach, for Passover. And, and one year, you know, there's a, an appointed time at the Passover Seder where you all open the door for Elijah. And as they opened the door, three women were outside saying, is there bingo tonight? <laughs> and we wondered if that was Elijah in some way. Well, but, and if you were a Christian, you'd say, of course it was Elijah in a threefold form, you know, triune. Yeah, there you go. But, yeah, but I mean, so now, all right, so now when did the big migration to Israel happen? Because I, I believe now most Jews have migrated to Israel. Why? And yeah, what drove them there? And uh, what primarily drove them there was getting back to the homeland. Uh, and so it, the migration really, for the most part, began after 1949, you know, after the war for independence ended and Israel had signed those uh peace agreements, well, they're not peace agreements at that time with the various Arab states and Indians began a migration and uh, many of them did and do go back and forth. And but the 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 number of Jews in India proper now is a very is very small. Uh, it's well under a thousand. And um, there were quite a number of synagogues throughout India, most of which are no longer in use some of which because of their historical and architectural significance actually have come under the, the care of the state. Some of which at least initially were placed under the care of reliable neighbors, Muslims and Hindus um, and mm. so on and so forth. Some of them, uh, a few of them are still, uh, are still in use. Um, and some of them are in use primarily because tourists come through to see them and to see the remnants of the community. But it, was, it really began you know, after, after independence there was another probably resurgence after the 1967 uh, Six Day War, um, and they're dispersed all over Israel. And you have, I would say, at least two dozen different Indian synagogues that are focused on one of these different communities uh, across across the country. There is right now, as you know from the book, coming into being, there was a Cochini kind of cultural center, and now it's broadening in the northern Negev to become an Indian Jewish cultural center, which will have a museum, which will have actually a synagogue, which will have all kinds of things, including flora that have been imported from India. So you'll actually have on the grounds a little bit of India there in the northern Negev of Israel. So again, I have both. I have my cake and eat it. And, and didn't, but what, didn't the Israeli government or the higher authorities have to determine whether they actually acknowledged Indian Jews as Jews initially? That is correct. Uh, early on, that was a discussion because that part of Israel, which is theocratic and has a, a rabbinate that thinks about these kinds of questions, the question was whether the Indian Jews, who by and large lacked the rabbinic traditions that the majority of Israel, uh, Israeli Jews possessed, at least in theory, you know, they came from that tradition, um, mm -hmm. whether they were truly Jewish. The same issue arose with the Ethiopian Jews uh, when they came to Israel and a few other groups as well. But the, 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 the rabbinate did officially, I forget the year, I wanna say 1961, but I don't have it in my head, officially pronounced all Indian Jews, truly Jews. Uh, and I find it kind of uh, almost amusing, but yes. that's because I don't, I don't think much of those who think they have the authority to tell okay. you or me what we are religiously speaking. And wasn't one of this group tying their origins to headhunters? Yes, you have these later groups, the the Beni Menashe and the Beni and the Beni Ephraim, and one comes from the north, the area of the Himalayas, and they had been for some time headhunters. 
But they claimed, by the way, that they had recognized- Jewish headhunters? Jewish headhunters? Jewish headhunters? They hadn't been Jewish at the time. Oh. But they claimed that they relocated their Jewish origins going much, much further back. So they were returning to those origins. In between, they'd been other things. And, uh, you know, you got to make a living. So I guess that is one way. You know, it's it's an alternative to the Jewish doctor. So yes, um, yeah, and it and it gives the word headhunter a whole new meaning. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. I mean, you have you have uh, you know shrinks. You have head doctors. So why not headhunters? Oh wow, that's so we should come full circle because you you obviously wrote this book in in large measure to to illuminate the the work of Siona Benjamin, a really interesting Indian artist. Um, it, it 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 doesn't seem to me coincidental. I mean, I know you have a real interest in in exile and how that affects the artist's mind and talent. And I'm assuming that in some way, being that she left for America where she studied art, her her work in your in your eyes maybe suggests something of an artist in exile. Yes and no. One of the things that Siona arrived at by the '90s, and she did a whole series called Finding Home. She said, I realized that wherever I put my tent, I'm home. Mm. So she's a Jew in Mumbai. Her friends and her classmates are mostly Muslims and Hindus. She's going mainly to Catholic and uh, Parsi or Zoroastrian schools. And she comes to the United States to study art. She's married for a while to a guy who originated in Eastern Europe. She's in the Midwest. She comes to New Jersey. I mean... She is an amalgam in terms of her own personal experience and roots of seven or eight different sources. And you see all of that in her art. And that's what I find so astonishing. You have um, Hindu miniatures. You have Persian illuminated manuscripts. You have Christian icons. You have Jewish symbols. You have um, uh, Chitra Amita comic books. You have um, Bollywood posters. You have uh, Roy Lichtenstein uh, what do you call it? Pop art. All yes. of those are sources, influences, and all of them visible, particularly in that series, but also in other parts of, of her artwork. So yes, she's at one of the same time in exile and not at all in exile. What, what moves you about her work? The symbolic language. I love the idea of synthesis. I love things that takes from different sources and kind of weave them together in an interesting sort of way. And her art just happens also to be aesthetically pleasing to me. It's beautiful, it's very colorful, it's very rich. It, f- it felt to me very feminist in a way. Uh, it Very much so. Uh, I mean, you have her transforming the figure of Lilith, which by the medieval Jewish period is kind of a negative figure, this idea of the first female created when Adam was created and she had wings and she refused to be under his thumb or under his foot or under him. And he complained to God and God told Lilith, look, clean up your act, girl, pay attention to Adam. And she said, no way, Jose, she gets tossed out of the garden. And then Eve is made who will, who will be subsidiary to Adam. And there's this later tradition that speaks of Lilith as someone who creates crib deaths, you know, and who robs uh, young... <laughs> young males of their manhood and things of that sort. You should never as a male sleep alone at night because then Lilith might come and get you and so on and so forth. But Siona completely transforms that into a positive figure, a symbol of strength. 
as she's not the only one to do that, but she does it in a unique way visually with her art. But she also, she'll take um, even male characters in the Bible and she'll imbue them with an interesting kind of feminine aspect. Joseph, for example, who was the one with whom the uh, Egyptian master Potiphar, his wife, fell in love with or fell in lust with Joseph. And there's a story, not in the Bible, but somewhere off in the rabbinic tradition that she could, she was so passionate about him and her girlfriends were all sitting around and they were making fun of her. And then Joseph walked by and he was so gorgeous that one of them who was cutting some fruit suddenly cut her finger. And so you see, so Siona has him looking simultaneously as a male and as this very attractive, winsome female she plays a lot with eradicating the gender distinctions. And by the way, that is to be found also in the Hindu tradition, where you have the image of um, Vishnu who, who has both genders at different times, even as Vishnu as a male has a consort, just as Shiva as a male has a consort. But you have this idea that there are conditions in which the Godhead itself assumes a dual gendered role. So, you know, that's just, you're right. That's a, that's a very uh, important aspect of what she does. I wonder Feminism, feminism in a very strong, but an also a very effective, very beautiful kind of way. Wow. Um, how old is she now? Siona would be 60-ish. Yeah. So sort of like third wave of feminism, right. really. You could put but it that way, yes, yes. Maybe she's not even aware of it. <laughs> oh, I think she's aware of it now. But one of the funny things that she has told, and I, I don't remember whether I even mentioned this in the book, when in the United States, she went to her first, it was a feminist conference. Mm. And uh, these Western women were saying, oh, you're from India? What, you, 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 you speak English? You must have been <laughs> oppressed growing up. And she realized that people have prejudices, whatever and whoever they are. She said, I felt my skin turning blue. So there's a whole series called, you know, paint me blue, call me blue, because her skin is turning blue. She says, every time I feel someone speaking things that are prejudicial, I feel my skin turning blue. So her sense of herself as a person of color is a person whose skin turns blue at moments of prejudice. But of course, blue is also important, particularly within Hindu art. Gods in particular Krishna are often depicted as blue, except the root of the word Krishna in Sanskrit really is a, a dark. It doesn't necessarily mean blue. It can be blue, it can be black, but she imposes that color which you would ordinarily associate with a male god on all these female figures. Once again, gender binding. But blue is also, she says, it's the color of the sky. It connects all of us. We all look up at the same yeah. sky. So yeah, very, very, very fascinating art and a very fascinating artist. It's such a paradigm shift. I was thinking green means jealousy, but only to Americans really probably, or maybe right. Europeans, but beyond that, yeah. That's, very. That's correct. Because green yeah. also can mean, of course, it's spring, it's resurrection, yeah. it's rebirth. It's all of that. It's the color of the grass, the trees when they start to bear leaves and so on. So, yeah. Fascinating. Um, I mean, it's so hard to believe this time just whizzed by, but I understand you're, you're, uh, you're thinking about um, applying for a fellowship. Maybe you can tell, tell our viewers. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping 
to get a Fulbright fellowship to go to India, actually primarily Mumbai, secondarily Chennai, uh, 16 months from now, because I want to do a study of four thinkers, uh, 20th century thinkers, Sri Aurobindo and um, uh, uh, Chittaranjan Das from the Indian side, and Martin Buber and Abraham Joshua Heschel from the Jewish side, because there's a lot of interface. I mean, not only in the way they think, but uh, Chittaranjan Das, for example, spent time in Israel. And on his first trip, he actually spent time with Buber. So it's not just a, you know, oh, there's some stuff in their thinking, but they actually had a relationship. Um, and obviously he was influenced by Aurobindo and Heschel's thinking, although there's no direct relationship to Aurobindo, it bared, there's a lot of things that are interesting to compare and so on and so on and so forth. And, and Buber himself, by the way, grew up as a very secular Jew in Europe and he discovered spirituality in a way by turning to the East. He was interested in Hinduism and Buddhism uh, from India to China. And that's what brought him to the place where on the one hand, he was writing all of these books on late Jewish mysticism, i.e. Hasidism, and also his most famous work, I and Thou, um, has three parts. The third part, there's a lot of stuff about Hinduism and Buddhism in it. So I'm interested in spending uh, you know, half a year really digging into comparative studying those those four characters. I feel a lot of Melita platters coming on. <laughs> I, I can't wait to to read your next work. Uh, do you want to tell us what it is? Uh, the one actually that finally came out, it, was, I, it should have been out a year ago, but there are paper shortages. It's right. uh, an intellectual biography of Fethullah Gülen, who is a Turkish imam who has been uh, attacked repeatedly by the current uh, tyrant of, of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan. And um, the movement that is inspired by Gulen in Turkish is called Hizmet, which means service. So really what he is all about is civil, not political Islam, and it's about serving each other. It's about if you're gonna fix the world and make it a more perfect place, it can't be just about us Turks or just about us Muslims yeah. or just about our, us Israelis or us Indians or us Americans. It's got to be about everybody. And that's what it's about. So it's kind of a book that both talks about his thinking. I interviewed 70, 75 people who know him either intimately or much more distantly for the purpose of the book. And it, it, its intention is really to demonstrate how if you're reading the Erdogan line, which is all you can get from Turkey, you're being lied to. Yeah. Because this guy is not at all what Erdogan would like people to believe he is. Quite right. the contrary. So that's what just came out a while ago, finally. Oh, Ori, thank you so much. I could obviously go on for hours, but um, we'll have to do that in part two. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Happy to return. Thank you so, so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I wish you continued success and with your teaching at Georgetown as well. Yes, indeed. It's a, a new semester and off we go. <laughs> off we go. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Happy, happy New Year too to you coming yeah. up. Bye. Same to you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. 
just search for the brand called you